The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own or those of our guests and in no way represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for or represent. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they were told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You're listening to Squawk Eye Dan, an aviation podcast that explores the many pathways to an aviation profession, the challenges that a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard Flight 87 of the Squawk Eye Dan podcast recorded on the 26th of August, 2021 from the Aviator Sound Studios from somewhere in Southern California. On today's flight, I am proud to be joined by a fantastic Squawk Ident crew member. Our journey today will have us discussing how the U.S. Department of Defense recently informed several U.S. airlines that it has activated the Civil Reserve Air Fleet, or CRAF. Our legacy airline's electronic flight bags have had a recent update to include such destinations as Ramsteed Air Base, Saganella Naval Air Base, Bahrain, Kuwait City, just to name a few. Also, Piedmont, PSA, and Envoy have recently announced the largest retention bonus program in U.S. airline history. We will explore how much they are offering and much more. We also explore the EMAS system and how to find out if your runway has them in place. The federal mask mandate has extended until January of 2022, But what does that mean to the recovery of the industry and how might it affect the pilot progression? With the FDA's recent approval of the Pfizer SARS COVID-19 vaccine, it means 100% participation for airline employees. Or does it? What Delta has done in mandating it and what is it going to cost its pilots? All this and more on Flight 87 of the Squawk Ident Podcast. Before we go any further, I would like to spend a moment and say thank you to Pete Tenderenda for joining us on Flight 86 Super Critical Coverage. We enjoyed listening to Pete tell us about his unique journey in aviation and some of the more exciting situations he has dealt with out on the flight line. Thanks again, Pete. We look forward to having you on again real soon. Now that our pre-flight is complete, let's get ready to push off the gate and start those virtual podcast engines. Flight 87 of the Squawk Ident Podcast is officially underway. Assisting at the controls today is an exceptional aviator and co-host. He is an award-winning trophy-hoisting tennis champion, a professional CFI, MEI, and I flight instructor, a former freight dog, a former airline pilot, a current King Air flight instructor, an assault falcon commander, a captain, and a corporate operator as well. He joins us from his palace of chaos, where he is rejoicing in the start of the coming school year. From somewhere in San Diego, California, please help me in welcoming back an amazing co-host and pilot, Captain Roger. Roger, how you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I, I almost had to call in fatigue for today, and so I, you're going to need to bear with me here. Uh, but I'm here. Happy, happy to be here. Yeah, and, and absolutely happy to have you. Now, it's been a few weeks since the last show, 
uh, we had Pete on, and that was a fantastic show. We, we really we had to kind of cut it short because after a couple hours of recording, we realized we could go on and on and on. So we're looking forward to having Pete back on the show. He had some amazing stories about rapid cabin depressurization and <laughs> having a fuel starvation in a, in a single uh, engine aircraft, a solo night flight. Oh, uh, talk talk yeah, about those, those things that most of the, the rest of us are fortunate enough we don't have stories to share. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and we learned a lot, and you know, it was fantastic. And I, I hope that all the listeners out there enjoyed that as well. But you've been pretty busy. It's been a few shows since you were on last. You were on uh, flight eighty five. Uh, it's the last episode you were on back in August third, and you at the time you were recovering from COVID with the families isolating at home. How's it been since then? That's it. It's been good. It's amazing how it's amazing how full your schedule can get. You know, we kind of like it was kind of funny even in in the uh, in the intro to the to this show. It's like we had we had to pause it. You know, to uh, what what day is it? What what day is it? What day of the month is it? And that it's definitely been like that for me. Um, fortunately for the COVID thing, everything has um, that's run its course. We didn't have um, any further issues, and so even by the time we had we had did done that show, that was it was pretty much over. So I'm happy to to say that. Good. And then I went pretty much right back to work. And then there's also been the family stuff that's been tied in amongst amongst the work schedule, and so just kind of piecing all that together and right now we've got um you know my wife started school this week and the kids are starting school next week and so get very excited about that um but just putting all this stuff together and you know i had the opportunity to go to a baseball game last night that broke all kinds of records so i got home rather late and just you know those things that where you got the work life and personal life and it's definitely all been coming together in the past the, the august really yeah. No, I, I hear you. I mean, my we, we were trying to schedule a show with all of us multiple times this week. Yeah, we were. <laughs> and it was a and I was like, well, hey, I'll be in uh I'll be in Bangor and we could, you know, early in the morning I can I can do that on my layover. And it was like, I'm exhausted. <laughs> it's not gonna yeah, happen. Yeah, there were two of you guys, I guess, that were exhausted from flying. It's, it, yeah. it, I thought I was kind of hoping it's going to work because I was on a trip and on an overnight, but it's like everyone was on different overnights and trying to piece yeah. all that together. I mean, there there are other things we could be complaining about. So, I mean, I'm happy to report that we've been just too busy to to get anything, you know, in the books. But yeah, it's been crazy. And then on another night, there was a zero internet access at the hotel. It was like, oh, that's right. The oh, internet. my yeah, I was thinking, okay, you know, even if it's a little slow, we can make it happen. It was like at one millibyte per second or whatever it is. <laughs> I was like, man, might as well go cellular on this one. Not going to quite cut it. Yeah. So, but hey, here we are and happy to have you on the show. Now, you were telling me you were breaking some airplanes this week. What happened? Oh, goodness. Uh, well, I... I Obviously, I didn't break the airplane. I don't want anyone thinking that anything funny happened here. But um, yeah, on two, I was flying both airplanes on different trips, and the APU went bad in different ways in both airplanes. (laughs) And um, you know, unfortunately, you you know, you you won't um, 
feel very bad for me with this, but unfortunately in the 2000, it's a, it's an air start engine, oh. which, which is nice. There's reasons for that, but that's pretty much all of you guys start with, with air start with yours. And so that's nothing different with you, but like the 900 is an, is an electrical start. Oh, and unfortunately getting an air, air start cart or a huffer cart or whatever you might call it. You mean the, is, the PCA cart or? I'm not sure. Maybe that's what you call Well, because there's the air start cart, which is a high pressure bleed air used to Correct. start the engine. And then there's the PCA cart, the preconditioned that's, air, which is just environmental. It, it, environmental. Ours is one in the same, actually. We've oh. only got one port and, if, and it's the high pressure air. Um, so not your PCA stuff. We just plug it in. You get the high pressure air and that actually goes through our environmental system as well. But finding those carts in the GA world is extremely difficult. Yeah. And not everywhere has them. I've spent multiple phone calls because I kind of became a little, I'm making phone calls on behalf of the first airplane that I broke when I, when I got back with that one. Um, <laughs> and then you have to make decisions. We actually did end up canceling a flight that I wasn't on because if you don't have, if you don't have that capability to start the engine, you flat out can't go because you're, you're dead in the water. Yeah. So, um, that fortunately, uh, well, unfortunately, of course they, they both broke at away from base. Mm. <laughs> so I wasn't even at home. Now, fortunately, both places that I discovered the problem, I did end up being able to get a hover cart, but I also was able to break one of those carts as well. So that created, uh, created another multi-hour delay after the cart that we had borrowed. As soon as I hit this engine start, the cart completely shut down. Uh, so it just decided, nope, not today. Yeah, it was running. We had air going through the cabin. And the worst part was like, you know, I, I got there to the airport extra early. Right. Because there's all these extra things to, to get yourself set up and you're trying to, to mitigate the, what happens with the passengers. Mm -hmm. And I had everything hooked up. I've got the GPU hooked up and I've got the air hooked up and there's air coming through the cabin. And I was like, okay, I'm going to start the engine. Like as the passengers show up. And so I got the, okay, we're pulling up to the gate. And I was like, all right, get, get the line guys over there. And I start the engine and the whole air cart literally just shut down and the motor quit everything stopped and they couldn't even get the motor started the engine started again and so now i'm sitting here with the passengers there in austin texas where it's like 97 oh, degrees and humid yeah so this happened in houston <laughs> austin and dallas those were my those were my uh failure positions this week and um something about texas and I'm sweating like a pig. I've, you know, one time I've got fuel that's just dripping on me when I'm trying to go in between. <laughs> I had to wash my shirt twice because I smelled like kerosene from going back to the aft um, service compartment. It was kind of a mess. But so from inside the aircraft, you went to the aft service compartment, which you've showed me. Uh, you've walked me through that airplane. Is, um, so you crawled through there and you have... You're, so, you're telling me you there's fuel leaking in there? Is that what you're saying? So I kind of, I definitely, that was the Cliff Notes version of that. The very, what was it? On the second airplane, what was happening on the second airplane is it was failing to ignite. Hmm. And I kept, I, I tried it probably, I tried it a couple times and then I called maintenance. 
our maintenance guy and he had me do some things, but I think that maybe the fuel solenoid wasn't closing entirely uh. every time that we tried to start it. And so what was happening is back way up at the APU, there was some fuel that yeah, escaped and was running down the tail or the tail section, the underside of the tail section to the airplane. I mean, we're not talking huge amounts, but um, let's just say enough that I was wondering if I was going to light a fire. <laughs> yeah, the light papers. a fire when I finally got it started. Yeah, um, which was not until the next day anyway. But um, yeah, and then basically on that aft service compartment when that door came open, that's where the fuel just kind of stopped there and just dripped. Oh. And I'm trying to run back and forth, and so you know, I just yeah got rained on a couple of times. Yeah, and you know one thing I learned uh, that it's probably a good idea to have on hand. Um, at a previous life, I was a retail manager, and part of my responsibility was to manage the gas station for one of these big box retailers. You can imagine the one with the red stripe on the building. And uh, so as the gas station and tire center manager that I was uh, for a little bit over a year, I had to learn a lot. And one thing I learned was that every gas station there has a spray bottle. And that spray bottle is called uh, FM-186. And it's a solution that was invented years ago. And when you spray it on gasoline or fuel, it immediately neutralizes it and turns it basically into water. And the reason it's called FM-186 is because when the developers showed it to the, the, uh, the oil giants, this product... The owner said, that's an effing miracle. <laughs> and so it was then rebranded as FM-186. Now, if you ever get gasoline on your hands and you're filling up your car, you know that that smell absolutely can linger. And if you get it on your clothes, it's the vapors from the fuel that ignite, not the liquid itself. Now, diesel engines, sure, we can, we can talk about diesel uh, being the the actual liquid is what catches uh, on fire or illuminate or you know ignites, uh, but when it comes to gasoline and jet A and that kind of thing, uh, it's the vapor. That's why there's spray nozzles that they vaporize the fuel, and that's what burns is the vaporization uh, is flammable. So when you get it on you or you smell it, if you're smelling it, that's flammable. <laughs> so yeah, you did you did absolutely the right thing, changing your shirt what two times? Yeah. Um, but that's kind of scary too, you know, knowing that there's something inside the aircraft like that, that there's electronics back there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not really sure what was going on because I mean, we had maintenance on that one. Maintenance came out and eventually, well, I'm not, they basically just pulled some stuff out and put it back in and then it worked. Looks good to um, me. <laughs> we just know that it started. You hit it with the ball peen hammer. It looks good. <laughs> And well, actually, that's, that's a little bit true on the other airplane. <laughs> my but, favorite, uh, uh, my that's favorite, besides the, that's besides the point. Yeah. My favorite meme is, uh, there's this, uh, you know, locomotive and they're having a hard time. They've been spending days trying to fix this locomotive and it won't start. And so they hire this professional, they fly him in, he looks at it and he goes, okay, um, how long has this thing been down? He goes, it's been down for like three days and we're losing, you know, millions. We need to get this thing up and running. So he goes, okay, I'll fix it. But it's, uh, 
$1 million price tag for me to repair it. He goes, how long will it take? He goes, about 10 minutes. He says, what? <laughs> so he says, okay, fine. Just, I need this, you know, going right now. He goes, okay. So he goes into the uh, engine compartment of the locomotive and tinkers around for about four minutes, pulls out a ball peen hammer, and with one shot goes, ding, and it starts right up. And he goes, I'm paying a million dollars for that. Are you nuts? He goes, no, you're paying a dollar for that. You're paying 999999 for me to know where to hit it. <laughs> Sometimes those mechanics, you got to give them credit, man. They, they got to know where to just tap it sometimes, you know? Yep. And, yeah. that, and that was also after, you know, with the hammer, um, it was a valve that was sticking on that one. The AP would start on that one, but the, valve, the bleed valve mm-hmm. had gotten stuck and they had pulled, they eventually like pulled it out and it was kind of gunked up. But yeah, apparently they just kind of yeah. manipulated or whacked it out, whatever they did, and valve popped open. Yep. Cleaned it up. Yep. Lubricated it, put some WD-40 on it. I spray, you go. <laughs> I fly, you fix. <laughs> but, yeah, I think that's right, going to be a replacement. So. Yeah. Well, hey, you're, you survived another week of the chaos of aviation, and congratulations. You know, speaking of the chaos of aviation, uh, yeah, last two weeks. I hear you've had quite the adventure. A little bit. A little bit. So, you know, uh, I won't get too much into the weeds with it, but it's good stuff has happened some good material that i've jot down in my uh, my little journal of uh, podcast topics so yeah i started out uh, after the last show which we did with pete uh, a couple days after i had a deadhead from ontario to to dallas and then from dallas i was supposed to operate a flight to chicago not uncommon but okay so i showed up to the airport Went out and did my deadhead. Got to see a, a movie in the back of the airplane. It was a nice little two-hour flight. Relaxed. Got to, got to Dallas, landed, and turned on my phone, and I got, ding your schedule has been modified. Okay, how? You're now deadheading to Chicago. Well, I guess what happened was Chicago had some major thunderstorms the night before and had hundreds of cancellations. They even had tornadoes touch down in the western uh, suburb area of, of Chicago and in, uh, in Illinois. And so in an effort to reconnect passengers to their destination, they changed equipment type. So instead of a Airbus A321, which was what was scheduled, they changed it to a Boeing 777, a much larger aircraft. Well, that meant I'm not qualified on a Boeing. I, I can't just, as pilots, when you're at an airline, you could have multiple type ratings, sure, but you're only current usually on one aircraft. Uh, once you're on that one aircraft, you don't go back to fly your previous airplane at all. Um, so you're only on one type at a time. With that said, they still had to get me to catch up with my schedule. So instead of flying or operating that aircraft, I was now, again, deadheading with my captain to Chicago in the back of a 777. No big deal. It was full. And I did get to see another movie. So, yeah, 
not a bad way to go, you know, watch a couple films, uh, sit in the back, have some coffee and get paid. You know, it's, it's a tough life, I gotta tell you. But one thing I did notice, the 777 is divided in multiple classes. Okay, so you have your business, you have your first, you have your economy plus, and you have your back of the aircraft economy with very little legroom. I was placed in the back for whatever reason. My captain was in at least economy plus in one of those, the two seats by the window that are together. So he was like, hey, enjoy, have fun. <laughs> I'm back there. And it was a little cramped, but at the, at the tail end of it, I, and I don't want to say anything too negative, but the passengers back there, uh, yeah. I mean, they were like, get off the plane, bitch. And I was like, what? The flight attendant's like, ma'am, there's 300 people on this airplane. Just relax. You know, she's like, you don't see what I see. They're not moving. They're dragging their ass. I was like, whoa, whoa, there are kids here. Calm down. I was like, okay, who's filming? <laughs> this is going to escalate quickly. Uh, I'm in uniform. I don't want to be in this. <laughs> so I ducked down. I'm like, oh, God, you know. And the flight attendant did a great job trying to calm everyone down. I was like, ladies and gentlemen, let's have patience. We're all getting off this airplane, you know, as quickly as we can. Let's just all kind of take a breath. And they did a great job. Everybody got off the plane. The captain's laughing because he heard everything from like five rows up. <laughs> so yeah, a little bit of excitement on my first day of that trip. Uh, next day, uh, had a wonderful one leg to Seattle, Chicago to Seattle. And a friend of mine who happens to be the vice chairman of our union over there at Legacy, uh, we call it the LPA, the Legacy Pilots Association. And they were having a family event at Boeing Field. And he said, hey, uh, if you're going to be doing a layover in Seattle, why don't you come down? And I said, you know what? Absolutely. It'll be great. Uh, it's good to be informed. Uh, can you get some information about what is currently going on? Uh, it's not any surprise that over at Legacy Airlines, we're having the uh, contract negotiations going on. And even though it was kind of put on the back burner with COVID for this last year. It's now starting to pick back up again. And so I went to that event and after the meeting was concluded, I got to tour Boeing's uh, museum at the Boeing field. And I had never been there. It was amazing. They had plenty of buildings filled with aircraft from World War One, World War II. They had the Concord. They had uh, uh, Air Force One there. Amazing museum. Highly recommended. Uh, with the COVID protocols, wasn't that bad. They had hand sanitizer everywhere. They asked everyone to wear a mask indoors. There's outdoor static displays as well. And uh, at the end of the the museum event, uh, Bill said, "Hey, you want to go to a Mariners game?" <laughs> I'm like, "Well, I, you know, I've been here. I got a layover here till tomorrow at noon. Let's do it." So we ended up walking over to the stadium and seeing a Mariners game, got fantastic seats, looked around, the stadium was pretty full. Uh, the game was kind of slow at the beginning, but man, the last few uh, innings were, were exciting. And the Mariners you know, won the game by a couple points, I think it was. I, I don't even remember what the final score was. Um, but I, I enjoyed the hot dog. I enjoyed the beer. You know, what, what more do you want? It's been so long since I've been to a, 
a public event like that. Now, your game, you said broke some records. Oh, my goodness gracious. Yeah. It was, uh, I went to the Dodgers Padres game last night here in San Diego. And they've got a new rule that as of last year that in extra innings, you start with a runner on second base. Well, the Dodgers and Padres, I I think the longest one had been 13 innings, as I recall. And the game last night went to 16 innings. It <laughs> Did was they do one, another seventh inning stretch like at that, inning we, 11? We were laughing about that. <laughs> it, 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 now that we've had our second seven inning stretch here in the uh, middle of the 14th <laughs> inning. Um, and it just, it was one to one and neither team. It was a pretty poor offensive showing by both teams, to be honest with you. But, um, you know, really good pitching and defense. And it's one to one through the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th inning. And we actually left in the 14th. We didn't even stay for the whole thing. But, uh, yeah. You know, hey. It just kept going. And going and And going. going. (laughs) And going. And in the back of my head, I'm like, I'm supposed to I'm supposed to be with Captain Tony tomorrow at 7 a.m. And Uh, it's now tomorrow. Yeah. Playing baseball on two different days now. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it gets to the point, I think, where the fans are like, I don't care who scores, just somebody, for the love of God, score. <laughs> it pretty much, it, you know, it, yeah, it was quite a game. You know, there were the good parts to it. There was the bad parts to it. But uh, yeah. as a Padres fan myself, you know, I'll, I'll just stop there because we're having a little bit of some issues down here on the baseball front. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's for another podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'm glad you got a chance to go out. I really had a a fantastic time to go to an event like that, um, hang out with with Bill and kind of talk a little bit of shop about what's going on with the union. um, And, you know, just just had a good time. This is what layovers are all about. When you when you actually have enough time on a layover where you're not exhausted and, you know, you got to go out to see a site or an event or a game. I mean, it's fantastic the next day was was very nice we got to uh fly from seattle back to dfw and then we went to wichita now wichita i hadn't been back there since i was at the regional it'd been a long time so i was kind of excited to go back to one of the you know airports that i have not seen in a long time that i used to go to quite a bit and they've completely remodeled the airport there they've done a fantastic job and what really impressed me was on the way in uh, we were shooting a visual approach i was actually came in basically on a downwind did a, a nice little roundabout landed to the south and i looked down at one point and i saw there's a lot of little airports around uh, the eisenhower airport over in wichita and I saw a building, a hangar that said Cessna across the top of it. And I thought, oh, that's cool. I bet you that's where the Cessna factory is or was, at least at some point. And then I looked to my right, and a couple miles away, I saw another little airport, and it said Beechcraft over the top of <laughs> the main building. And I thought, oh, this must be where the Beechcraft factory is. Wow, they're pretty close together. That must be a little bit of a rivalry. And I didn't really understand or I didn't really know the history behind it. Roger, have you ever looked into this uh, this rivalry between the two? I never really looked into it. I, or 
I never even thought about, although I did know that they both were there, you know, having done a bunch of stuff in the King air, people are always going to Wichita Mm. for that factory. And I think a lot of citations come at or or came out of Wichita as well. Yeah. Well, what I found out, I did a little digging afterwards that the Cessna Aircraft Company was an American General Aviation Manufacturing Corporation headquartered in Wichita, Kansas. The company produced small piston-powered airplanes as well as business jets for much of the mid-20th century. Cessna was one of the highest volume and most diverse producers of general aviation aircraft in the world. It was founded in 1927 and was purchased by General Dynamics in 1985 and then Textron Incorporated in 1992. In March of 2014, when Textron purchased the Beechcraft and Hawker Aircraft Corporation, Cessna ceased operations as a subsidiary company and joined the others as one of three distinct brands produced by Textron Aviation. So I didn't even know that. I thought when you buy a Cessna, it's a Cessna. I didn't understand that Textron owns it all. Well, Clyde Cessna, a farmer in Rago, Kansas, built his own aircraft and flew it in June of 1911. He was the first person to do so between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains. Cessna started his wood and fabric aircraft ventures in Enid, Oklahoma, testing most of his early planes on the salt flats when bankers in Enid refused to lend him more money to build his planes. He ended up moving to Wichita. Cessna aircraft was formed when Clyde Cessna and Victor Ruse became partners in the Cessna Ruse Aircraft Company in 1927. Ruse resigned just one month into the partnership, selling back his interest to Cessna. Big mistake. Shortly afterwards, Ruse named <laughs> was dropped from the company name. Cessna DC-6 earned certification on the same day as the stock market crash of 1929, October 29th to be exact. In 1932, the Cessna Aircraft Company closed its doors due to the Great Depression. However, the Cessna CR-3 Custom Racer made its first flight in 1933. The plane won the 1933 American Air Race in Chicago and later set a new world speed record for engines smaller than 500 cubic inches by averaging 237 miles an hour. You never thought of a Cessna as a speed demon before, did you? I never did. Cessna's nephews, brothers, Dwayne and Dwight Wallace, bought the company from Cessna in 1934. They reopened it and began the process of building it into what would later become a global success. The Cessna C-37 was introduced in 1937 as Cessna's first seaplane when equipped with Edo floats. In 1940, Cessna received the largest order to date when they signed a contract with the U.S. Army for 33 specially equipped Cessna T-50s. Then later in 1940, the Royal Canadian Air Force placed an order for 180 of the T-50s. So Cessna has been around a long time. We've, every student pilot knows what a Cessna 152 or a 172 is, and they think, well, yeah, cool airplane. But there's so much more history involved. And the fact that I saw this flying in and thought, oh, maybe that would be a good show topic. Let's look into it. And then I come to find out really how it all got started. And then when I read about uh, Ruse selling within the first year his, his uh, share in the company, I thought, that's got to hurt. 
<laughs> Upon learning about the Cessna company and just taking a look at the Wikipedia page, really, um, I learned a little bit that most, I think, student pilots or, or people coming into the industry may not dig that deep. They see a, a Cessna 152 or a 172 and they think, oh, wow, this is great. You know, this airplane's probably been around for a long time. And they don't really dig into the manufacturing, uh, who started the company, where they where their manufacturing plant is, uh, how long they've been in business, what are the models, you know, what else do they do, what other aircraft do they make. And it was just interesting to kind of dig into that. And here I am 20 years into my career uh, in aviation, and I honestly am kind of disappointed that I never looked into this sooner. Well, flying overhead, as I mentioned, I also saw just a few miles away from this airport was another little airport with the, with the inscription Beechcraft over the top of their main building. And I thought, well, let's take a look at Beechcraft and see what's going on. Clearly, there's a, some kind of rivalry here. And, you know, Roger, it was interesting to find out a little bit about Beechcraft. What did you uh, see on that? The uh, Beach, Beach Aircraft Company was founded in Wichita, Kansas in 1932 by Walter Beach as president and worked with his wife, Oliver Ann Beach, as secretary. They had several other members as part of the company in its, in its young days, and the company began operations in an idle Cessna factory, actually. Huh. With designer Ted Wells, they developed the first aircraft under the Beechcraft name, the classic Beechcraft Model 17 Staggerwing, which first flew in November of 1932. Over 750 stagger wings were built with 270 manufactured for the U.S. Army Air Forces during World War II. Well, so, you know, Beechcraft started out a little bit later, a little bit after Cessna, but they started building airplanes in an old Cessna. In that old Cessna factory. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, you know, Beechcraft has been around for a while. We all see them there. I think they're, the Travel Air was the name of the uh, company before Beechcraft, and then they kind of formed into Beechcraft um, in the 30s. Well, in 1950, Olive Ann Beach was installed as the president and CEO of the company after the sudden death of her husband from a heart attack on November 29th of that year. She continued as CEO until Beach was purchased by Raytheon Company on February 8th of 1980. Ted Wells has since uh, replaced his chief engineer by Herbert Rawdon, who remained at the post until his retirement in the early 60s. So throughout the mid to late 20th century, Beechcraft was considered one of the big three in the field of general aviation manufacturing, along with Cessna and Piper. October 2013, the company now uh, financially turned around and it was again up for sale. And in December 26, 2013, Textron agreed to purchase Beechcraft, including the discontinued Hawker jet line for $1.4 billion. The sale was concluded in the first half of 2014 with government approval. Textron CEO Scott Donnelly uh, indicated that uh, Beechcraft and Cessna would be combined to form a new light aircraft manufacturing Textron Aviation. That would result in U.S. $65 million to $85 million in annual savings for their companies over keeping the companies um, separate. So they just said, hey, let's just put these brands together. And, uh, and that's exactly what we have today. 
I really enjoyed uh, learning a little bit about the history of some of these Textron companies. Now, Kyle would have been, <laughs> been great to have him on the show. He's having some uh, internet issues. He just He's in his new house. Uh, Rob actually was helping him paint the other day, <laughs> and uh, he's waiting for the internet guy today, and he quite didn't show up on time for this. Uh, we didn't want to delay this show any longer, um, but Kyle has a lot of knowledge on these Textron companies. Uh, so maybe on the next show, we can talk to him a little bit about it. Uh, but my trip went on uh, that week, and I ended up finishing up on uh, Wichita back to Dallas the next day and Dallas to Ontario and I had a couple days off. It was nice. Got to spend it with the family. We were pretty busy uh, and it was just go, go, go. We did an Ontario to Dallas, Dallas to Vegas. And the next day, Vegas to Phoenix. Now, the uh, Vegas to Phoenix flight was interesting because it was my leg. We took off. Nothing really exciting happened. It was just a regular day. But the way it worked out, we actually conducted a flight that was a perfect arc. Meaning from takeoff, we continued to climb. And as soon as we reached our cruising altitude, we, we weren't even level for more than a second. And we already started our descent into the airport, into Phoenix for the arrival. And I just thought, man, isn't that just a perfect arc? Isn't that the most ideal way to fly an airplane in terms of fuel and everything else? Now, Roger, you probably are the, the man to ask about this. Is flying a perfect arc much better than leveling off at a lower altitude and trying to pick up some speed? Uh, well, I guess that there's a couple different ways to look at that, but from a mathematical, uh, from a mathematical fuel con fuel conservation standpoint, I do believe that I remember from a while ago that the perfect parabola is the ideal way to operate an aircraft. Yeah. Now kind of everything depends on what metrics you want to, you, you want to measure things by, but yes, that is the way that is mathematically presented to us. The perfect parabolic arc yeah and and i i got to see it and it was it was cool it was kind of neat to to do it and i felt like oh look at that perfect leg captain looked at me was like you're such a nerd <laughs> it was kind of funny because i actually had when i did i did a uh san diego to scottsdale leg, and ours was it wasn't quite that perfect probably because of me because i was flying it but we were still in the climb when we got a a descend we were still climbing, and then we got a uh, pilot's discretion descent, actually. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I was kind of thinking the same thing. That was just last week also for me. Yeah, and I've had that a few times. Uh, so what do you do? Do you continue up to your filed altitude, or do you immediately stop the climb in order to now establish oh, I kept a descent? The I kept the climb going. Because I knew that, that, I mean, for the, for the descent into Phoenix, they just send you way early anyway. So I was like, oh, I'm going to get as high as I can. And we'll hang out here for about 90 seconds, and then we'll start down. There you go. Yeah, if you're like a thousand feet away from your, from your level off, and they and they've give you a descent. Now, if they tell you descend now to, okay, I would level off immediately and descend now. Yeah. But if they say, you know, pilot's discretion, descend, maintain, yeah, then it's like, okay, your last filed altitude was, say, 24,000 feet. You're at 23,000 feet, about to level off. Yeah, I'd probably level off for a second run through my mental checklist of okay what needs to happen at cruise and then 
start a descent because you, if there's something in your company ops that you're supposed to do something at cruise or whatever, you might skip that. Um, so yeah, it just depends on the clearance, I guess. Yeah, ours was, I think we're, we're going through about 28 on our way to 31 and the controller said, you know, you're, you're free to continue your climb cross. I don't remember what it was, Mohawk or hogs or something at flight level two five zero or whatever it was. And so we just kind of kept going that at 3000 feet and then worked our way back down to make that crossing restriction. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and in a sense that again is your perfect parabola, as you mentioned. Now, sometimes we have these little nuances and on the line and we think, Oh, that's so cool. You know, and maybe it is a little <laughs> nerdy or obsessive of me, but but yeah, they're they're definitely memorable. Well, you know the uh, the flying continued on for me. Uh, we ended up doing a uh, a Bangor, Maine layover, and I had not been into Bangor, Maine ever. Actually, it was usually a destination that a regional uh, aircraft would go to. It's a smaller airport up north, and uh, we were there. And unfortunately, we we're having hotel issues because we were, I think, the second night that the airline had stayed at this hotel and yeah that you know we call the hotel at the curb and they're like well we don't have a van it's like well, what do you mean you don't have a van <laughs> it says here that you're picking us up from the curb you should be here like well we don't have a van it's like so are you are we supposed to take a cab or what's going on here so now you know the blood's boiling a little bit and they're like well do you want me to call you a cab it's like, well, <laughs> hold on a second this is a scheduled layover what why is there no you know, van and prepared or cab service called beforehand. I mean, this should all been prearranged. And like, well, I'll I'll call my sister company across the street and I'll have them send their hotel van. It'll be about twenty five minutes. I was like, well, we've already been on the curb. So yeah, we watched all of our passengers go to baggage claim and uh, pick up their stuff and get picked up, and they all left the airport. So then the captain and I were left alone standing on the curb waiting for this hotel van it was not good we we made some phone calls with the company and tried to rearrange a few things but unfortunately that's it was what it was and of course you get to the hotel and you know it's about seven o'clock at night you've been flying all day you've done three legs and and you just want to you know grab a bite to eat and go to bed and we get there and the restaurant lights are all off and we're like is your restaurant not open oh no they're not open on sundays (laughs) okay uh, so I'll look on Google Maps and there's like nothing walking distance. There aren't even any sidewalks here. This is a newer hotel. I mean, so I'm like, well, the van driver said he'll take us somewhere if we need to when we we're driving in. Oh, well, you'll have to arrange that with that hotel. <laughs> so then we go to check in and she's like, will you be putting a credit card down for the room, sir? Like, well, we're airline. We're, it's all, all should have been, are you kidding? And she's like, oh, do you just want me to use the the legacy airlines credit card that they use to make the reservation. So obviously they had never dealt with airline crews staying at their facility. They didn't know the protocols, how we just check in, sign in on a sheet. Matter of fact, they didn't have a sign in sheet. We ended up having to do that the next day. So it wasn't the best experience, Uh, but I'm sure they'll work out the kinks soon enough. Uh, Then, and and this is where we'll conclude my uh, <laughs> my journey of this last week with all the, the what we had to deal with. Um, but coming in from Bangor to DFW the next day, it was a typical 
arrival coming in from the east, and we were anticipating a visual approach to 17 left. Now, anyone familiar with the DFW airport knows that there's a lot of runways, a lot of approaches, a lot of arrivals. They use the four corners methodology. So they, they bring the traffic in from one of the corners. We were coming in from the northeast corner and on an arrival. And, and the aircraft in front of us was an air shuttle aircraft, and they were uh, given a vector to send the 4,000 and then go to a, go to a fix and then clear, maintain. They were told maintain 190 knots and you're clear the visual. We, the legacy aircraft, were behind them. Now, I have audio from this so that I'm not going to go into detail too much, but the aircraft behind them was us, legacy. I don't know why the audio's messed up. They, they say a different airline, but that's not us. And uh, they tell us kind of the same thing. We're all in trail of each other. They usually stack us about four, three, four, five miles apart. And then there was another aircraft behind us. It all kind of got real sticky when the regional jet in front of us decided to go to their approach speed around 12 miles from the runway. And it created kind of a domino effect. And we're going to listen to that right now. Air shuttle 9882 is going to maintain 3,000. Shuttle 3,000, shuttle 9882. American 1536, you send a 7.5 American 1536, we're going to approach Roger 1, 7.1. 36 right to 17 left. American 2946, Mike. All right, we're direct inward now, and uh, we'll uh, approach and let you know. Here's shuttle 9882. Air shuttle 9882, we're due So far, so good. American 2946, turn left, direct inward, reduce speed 190, report DFW, 11 o'clock, 1,000. My captain's super cool. Air total 
half behind you. So if you can uh, 60 knot overtake. Can inside the marker. <laughs> you bet. We'll get, we'll, we'll get pick it up. 1586. American 1536. Turn left heading 200. Join the 17 left. Left laser report to 11 o'clock, 15 miles. Left 200. Join the load. 17 left. Airport site. American 1536. American 1536. Clear visual first. 17 left. And maintain 100 zero knots. Let's division one seven left one ninety for American sixteen thirty six. American uh, twenty nine forty six. You can reduce your final, please. Okay, we'll slow all the way back. American twenty nine forty six. Yeah, American twenty nine forty six. You're following a uh, regional jet. Well, eleven o'clock, three and a quarter mile. He uh, slowed back uh, outside the marker. He's taking the speed up right now. Showing one forty across the ground. All right, we're just uh, slowing Still it back. Still doing one forty. One forty. So, and uh, we got him in sight. American twenty nine forty six. 1836 and you can do that through the archive. Um, I had to go and find it, and then I, I put this in my audio rec um, software editing, and I took out all the long pauses that were in between. It didn't happen that fast. That's like a two-minute thing. So in real time, there were a lot more pauses in there. A lot of them I pulled out just for the sake of time for this. Now, for those following along, you know there were three aircraft involved here. I removed all the other airplanes that were just random and so what happened was there was a crj in front they were told 190 knots fly to the fix now it wasn't the final approach fix it was the fix before that so we're talking about 10 maybe 11 miles out on 17 left ils now you cleared a visual but they also gave you guidance to a fix because even if you're doing a visual approach you're backing it up with any available nav aid that's standard operating procedure for almost every single airline that I've ever you know, known that has that. Um, and, and so this crew was told 190 knots. Now, if you're not familiar, I could see making the mistake of slowing down early. But when you're going into a class Bravo airspace, you do as fast as you can or whatever they assign you until landing is assured or the final approach fix. That's when we usually, the final approach fix, which is G-Bush on this particular approach, is normally when you would drop the gear, get in final configuration. Uh, you're usually about uh, 2,300 feet off the, off the ground, and then you would come in and, and just perform an, a regular landing because you'll be stabilized by 1,000 feet, no problem. So even though it was a visual approach, you're still expected to fly the guidance that you have available to you and the speeds last assigned until you're on switch to tower and you're inside the final approach fix where you can get configured so you could be stabilized. This crew went from maintain 190 knots, cleared the approach, and they immediately went to their approach speed, which is just slightly lower than 140 knots. It's 138 knots, approximately. Now, we... And, I, and I, I apologize for the audio. They kept screwing it up. We're actually, we were legacy airlines. Um, so we, uh, I was flying and we kind of saw this happening. And when we heard him say, oh God, you know, uh, we immediately, I didn't even wait for them. 
to tell me to slow down. I, I could see on the T-cast that this guy's close and we were rustling the tail feathers. So I immediately started slowing it down and started reacting. And now you can hear my captain, who is, who is the pilot monitoring on the radio, saying, yeah, we're already at 190. And then, oh yeah, we're already at 140. Uh, because we, we were anticipating what was happening. We had very good situational awareness. Now, this can happen to any crew. I don't want to, you know, <laughs> sit there and point the finger and, and be the Monday morning uh, quarterback kind of guy. I'm not saying that. This could happen to anyone. Maybe the guy was new. Maybe they're on IOE. Who knows? It doesn't matter. What I wanted to to display here was that there are protocols that sometimes are unspoken but need to be understood. And going into a major airport you do what's last assigned or best forward speed until otherwise indicated. And they'll tell you what speed they want because they're stacking you tight, especially under visual conditions. Three mile separation is the minimum. It's also their maximum. So the minute you start to, to really encroach on that, it really can kind of cause a go around, which nobody wants. The controller doesn't want it. They have to file a report. The pilots don't want it. They have to file a report. So everybody just wants to have this like zipper effect and everybody land one after the other in a coordinated fashion. Now, what you didn't hear in that audio, because it was from a different frequency and a little bit later, was the aircraft behind us asked if they should do an S-turn, which at low altitude in an Airbus, you don't want to do an S-turn on final if you don't have to. The controller actually said, no, the spacing's good. We ended up timing everything really well. Um, I and Because I anticipated the slowdown, we ended up having plenty of separation. The embarrassing part <laughs> was after, and I don't have audio for that, but uh, they missed a turn and ended up doing a U-turn in front of us and ended up nose to nose with us. Uh, and then the ground controller was like, okay, just do a U-turn there on the taxiway, stop and wait for the Airbuses to pass you. And so, of course, then they did a U-turn and then we, we turned in front of them and, and so did the aircraft behind us. And then they followed and they were kind of, they were having a hard time. And this happens. It's human factors. This is what happens. That's why we have the threat and error management system, the Swiss cheese effect. Uh, I was listening to an earlier podcast, one of my favorites, the airline pilot guy show. And they were talking about maybe sometimes the Swiss cheese holes aren't big enough and they're more like the Funyun holes. <laughs> that was funny. I, I, I got to give props to those guys. Um, and so, yeah, these kind of things happen. Be patient. Be situationally aware. Don't be overcritical because it can happen to anyone. I mean, I've slowed early a few times and kind of got the slap on the wrist. Uh, did I tell you to slow? <laughs> I learned my lesson though. <laughs> Roger, have you had these experiences where uh, you have to go around because the aircraft in front of you is like dragging their feet on the runway or anything like that? Well, well the answer to that is definitely yes for me, but we also... <laughs> We also need to put that caveat in there that I, I operate in a little bit of a different world. Um, we do go around. I mean, it's not frequent, but I would say a couple times a year, and mostly because a lot of these airports that we fly into are GA airports. And that airplane that's in front of you that's dragging their feet is because they don't have any other they, ha they don't have another choice. If it's a Cessna 172 or a Cessna 152 or a Piper Arrow, because that's what they're flying. I mean, them doing their 60 knots is something that's entirely normal and we might be coming up on their tail at 120 just 
generally about our approach speed at about 120 knots and there's nothing that they can do and so every once in a while because of controllers they approach to tower or something we just get too close and then we do have to do a go around that's happened a couple times it's not that big of a deal but it's it, that's just because of the nature of flying into the training airports that we fly into sometimes. Yeah. In your scenario. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had to laugh when the controller, I mean, the controller on the radio, you could tell I was like in disbelief about what was happening. Please don't, when you're flying into a class Bravo airport, please don't slow to 120 knots at 10 miles. That's like, that's just, I mean, common sense kind of says that there are, airplanes that are unable to fly at 130 knots and flat out unwilling to fly 130 knots yeah for that far um and that goes back to what you had brought up as as being situationally aware yeah i don't know the monday morning monday morning quarterbacking i don't know what was going on it sounded like was that a maintenance flight I mean, usually a 9882 or whatever it was is there, usually there are other issues that they had before they revenue. got to the gate um, they actually yeah. almost went into the ra- wrong ramp. Uh, I, there's a lot of things that went wrong on that flight, and we and got to hear it we all. We won't get into that. Yeah, we won't in, get into in, that. DFW can kind of get in. I mean, yeah, is is, is a intimidating airport on the ground. I've, oh yeah, you know, I've been there several times, and so we'll give them that. But let's let's. I mean, at that level, when you're flying an aircraft and you're probably capturing an ILS into one seven left, even though it's visual, you're probably backing it up with an ILS mm-hmm. and you're flying 130 knots into a class Bravo DFW airport. World's busiest airport. Let's, I mean, right now, come on. Yeah. Yeah. So now a couple things, uh, that we had a discussion after we got to the gate about it. It wasn't overcritical discussion. It was just like, man, these DFW controllers are really nice. And, and my captain said that. And I said, what do you mean? He goes like, you know, if this would have been JFK or Chicago or, or any of these other busy aircraft, maybe even Atlanta, I was expecting them to say, air shuttle, cancel your approach clearance, climb to maintain 3000, turn fly runway heading and turn left and, and then recycle them into basically have them go around and recycle them into the line because if they would have done that, they would not have had this domino effect of all these aircraft having to slow and possibly do S turns on final behind them, and, and they wouldn't have lost the separation. So the fact that they worked with this crew, and we all, I think that added to the fact that we, right behind them on the legacy flight, were more situationally aware, and we slowed down early uh, because we saw what was happening. And then the the pilot, the the female voice you heard, that was behind us, the other uh, pilot, I guess they were an American flight, I guess, I don't know. And so they kind of saw this happening and they even suggested, hey, do you want us to do an S turn on final or something? Or, you know, you turn off the low and come back just to add some spacing. Uh, the fact that we were all kind of on board with what was happening, they didn't have to do that. So the controllers, I got to give my hats off to them in, in Dallas. They did a good job. They, um, they were nice about it. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times yeah, just cancel your approach clearance go around <laughs> it's like they get frustrated because of this kind of thing so yeah my hat's off to them good job and we'll have more about the craft the EMAS and the biggest bonuses in history right after the break
and welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, we've been talking about uh, you know what we've been going through in the past couple of weeks. A lot of the flying, a lot of the uh, the issues that we've come across, some of the stresses that have come into play. But a lot has been happening in aviation. I mean, we've been talking about the extension of the mask mandate. We've been talking about what's been going on politically in Afghanistan. The the games that are being played and the the media sensation that's going on around it, it, what happened in Kabul is absolutely embarrassing for our country. But we're not here to talk about that. What we do want to talk about is craft. What is craft? Now, when I was at the regional, I really didn't even know anything about this because they're not really involved in it. They can't be involved in it. They don't have the equipment. But once I came to Mainline, uh, actually during Indoc, they explained the possibility to volunteer as a pilot to participate in the Civil Reserve Air Fleet. And I was like, oh, what's this? Uh, I learned about it and put that on the back burner and thought, well, one day when I'm on equipment that could actually be used for craft, uh, I will definitely consider volunteering for this. It seems like something very noble and very um, exciting to be a part of. Well, craft has been activated in the United States. This is from defense.gov in an article that was posted on August 22nd. The Department of Defense activates the Civil Reserve Air Fleet to assist with Afghanistan efforts. The article goes on to say that the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd J. Austin III, has ordered the commander of U.S. Transportation Command to activate Stage 1 of the Civil Reserve Fleet, or CRAF. Activation provides the Department of Defense access to commercial air mobility resources to augment our support to the Department of State in the evacuation of U.S. citizens and personnel, special immigrant visa applicants, and other at-risk individuals from Afghanistan. The current activation is for 18 aircraft, three each from American Airlines, Atlas Air, Delta Airlines, and Omni Air, two of Hawaiian's airplanes at Hawaiian Airlines, and four from United Airlines. The department does not anticipate a major impact to commercial flights from this activation. Craft-activated aircraft will not fly into Hamid Karaz International Airport in Kabul, they will be used for an onward movement of passengers from temporary safe havens to interim staging bases. Activation of craft increases passenger movement beyond organic capacity and allows military aircraft to focus on operations in and out of Kabul. Now, this is an emergency preparedness program tool, and they, the government pays these airlines a regular stipend every year in order to be on the ready in the event that they need it. This is the third time craft activation has been performed in the history of the program. The first occurred in support of operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm from August of 1990 to May of 1991. The second time was for Operation Iraqi Freedom between February of 2002 and June of 2003. The DOD's ability to protect military forces is inextricably linked to com the commercial industry, which provides critical transportation capacity as well as global networks to meet day-to-day -day and contingency requirements. Utilizing commercial partners expands U.S. Transcom's global reach as well as access to valuable commercial intermodal transportation system. 
the Secretary greatly appreciates the support of our industry partners in this critical mission. So, what is CRAF? Now, I am not uh, part of that because on the Airbus A320, we really don't go into uh, overseas uh, destinations. The seven, the triple seven, and the A3. What is it? the triple seven and the actually seven eighty seven? are two of the aircraft that Legacy Airlines has that could potentially do this. As a matter of fact, I understand that uh, a couple flights are already going out of New York and Dallas, I think, today. So there was plenty of flight attendants and, and pilots that volunteer every time this happens. And the company sent out uh, more than a few emails about this saying, you know, we're going to have way more people uh, historically volunteering for this so if you don't get selected don't worry but you know we appreciate your 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 um, willingness to serve and help in this time of need and um i found it quite interesting have you ever heard of this before roger i can't say that i that i really paid much attention to it you know those those previous dates i i guess for lack of better terms i wasn't paying all that close of attention um to world affairs um you know i think it's a it's one of those things that i think does especially in today's world where so many people are apart that we can try and band together and try and and do some good in the world especially i mean especially given that most of these people i think are are mostly u.s citizens and and that there are people that actually volunteer to do this stuff because these are not short flights i mean getting yourself from even if it's the eastern seaboard of the US and getting yourself over to Germany and or or are these other military installations where they're going I mean you're talking about days of, of volunteer work so yeah yeah now you volunteer you I mean you do get paid it's not like you're doing this uh, unpaid by the company because the government obviously pays the company the company will pay you but you have to volunteer to do it they can't make you do it um, but yeah I was looking through my EFB and they had an an update and it was a really big update and i thought wow this is a this is a pretty big update i wonder what all this stuff is and it came out the same day as the craft was activated and sure enough thought what what are all these charts that they're uploading and under the charts diversion guide folder which i had a really hard time <laughs> finding um they have uh, whole folders with all kinds of procedures and terminal charts. And it's interesting to kind of look at these because, you know, we, we fly our usual, you know, couple hundred destinations here in the U.S. And, and around the world for international pilots. But, you know, unless you're on a 777 and, and go in there regularly, you don't really ever look at these charts in the Middle East. And we have charts for uh, air bases in Germany, Egypt, uh, airports in Spain. A few in Italy, Aviano and Siganella, some in Turkey, Bahrain has a few, Saudi Arabia has a, a bunch, actually. Jordan, Kuwait, uh, UAE has a few airports listed here, Oman, Qatar. I mean, some interesting reading. So the next time you're at cruise and you're maybe not uh, knee-deep in a conversation with the guy next to you... Uh, you feel like taking a look at these charts and procedures. Uh, quite interesting to take a look. So in other news, I, I found out this morning, uh, Kyle posted this on the, the Aviation Business Information Board, the ABIB. 
Piedmont, PSA, and Envoy. These are the American Airlines wholly owned carriers, regional carriers. This morning, through intercompany emails, they announced that they are going to have the largest pilot retention bonus program in the United States airline history. So, effective immediately, all captains will receive a $30,000 bonus. So, effective immediately, all captains will receive a $30,000 bonus. First officers will receive the $30,000 bonus as soon as they upgrade. All pilots that end up flowing through to American will receive a $70,000 bonus to flow. And they're also in works with a $50,000 biannual bonus for which their method of distribution is currently to be determined. This is monumental. I mean, the days of making eighteen dollars to $24,000 your first year at a regional airline, being on reserve, living out of a crash pad in a suitcase for your first few years, not being around the house and the family, and just all for the hopes of building hours, that time is gone. This is monumental. And you have to ask yourself, what is the reasoning behind this? Now, for those aviators out there that are working on their ratings, that are working on their private pilot license, that are maybe flight instructing right now and thinking, well, I'm going to figure out where I'm going to go fly. What airline should I put my application in? This is a game changer. I mean, that's a lot of money. These guys are making more than mainline with all these bonuses. This is crazy. So, Roger, what do you think? Would you, would you consider going back to a regional to earn 30K and 70K bonuses and 50K biannual bonuses? No. <laughs> Next question, please. What do you think? No. What do you, what's the reasoning behind this? What do you think? Well, everything, I mean, everything is relative. I mean, if, that is fantastic. Looking back on my life 15 years ago. Oh, my goodness. I've been flying commercially that long. Um, then, then, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's great. I'm glad that, quite frankly, that, that there's opportunities that are outside of what we had to put up or endure when we first started. Um, but it's, I, I just at this, at this point in time, I wouldn't do it because I've worked my way up high enough that I don't. I've done the regionals. I did not particularly care for the regionals. Um, the pay being one of the issues, but then there's some others as well. It's a hoop that you got to jump through. And in, I'll just kind of leave it at that for right now with the regionals. Um, I've never really understood the, the gap between the regionals and the main line. You're flying just as high. You're flying just as fast. And, and quite honestly, the work that you do at a regional airline is harder than what you do at a legacy. I am mm -hmm. um, 100% sure of that. And yet there's a, a huge pay disparity, which I, I wish would get addressed. It never will, but it's just a, a pipe dream. But I think for me at this point, it's kind of, you know, I, I do debate maybe if I got a chance at a major, would I do it? I don't know that I could, that would be something that I could debate, but the whole regional thing, while it's great for those guys, 
um, because they're there now. And that's always of great benefit Uh, for me personally. No, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. Well, even at Mainline, um, we recently, our union leadership is sent out communications that said you can expect at Legacy Airlines to have a three-year seniority captain in the left seat very soon. Like, Because of retirements? Because of retirements, because of the rubber band effect that we've been talking about for over a year and a half now. Uh, uh, and now with just everything that's going on, yeah, the company probably was a little premature in parking all their 7.5 and 7.6s and the A380s or A330s, I should say. Um, Why do you say that? Well, because now uh, those airplanes could have been used for many things. Um, they but who was gonna, who's going to fly them? I mean, you could bring the, the We're aircraft canceling back, flights but all those... Because we don't all, have airplanes and crew and flight attendants. Because you don't have crew. And, and if you have all these airframes back, nobody is going to be able to be there to fly. I mean, un- unfortunately, the whole COVID thing and the way that we dumped the airplanes and got rid of all those people for reasons that I understand is now I think that a bunch of almost all companies from, from reading stuff have, have actually tried to ramp their schedules back up much faster than yeah. their personnel are able to. And, and, you know, in a perfect world, yeah, you know, it'd be great if we had more airplanes, but who's going to fly them? Yeah, it's all. And I think this is all related. This is all related because that's why they're giving bonuses. Why? Because we want people to go to these holy owns because we here at Legacy have ramped up our training department yet again. I think the last number I saw was, what, 700 new hires in the next year. Um, and I think that number is actually quite low. The reality is I think we'll have almost doubled in that as long as the schoolhouse can keep up. Um, there's a lot going on and there's a lot of growth and there's a lot of retirement and there's a lot of people that are not coming back from leave and the regionals need to keep up with the flying, grow, bring the people back get the new hires on board and they have to deal with the fir- the, the flow through guys that are leaving their company in order to go to mainline. I also think that they're giving these uh, giant bonuses to pilots that flow because they're a little top heavy, meaning there's a good percentage of their pilots that have been there for 20 years plus and they have no intention to go to mainline because they have a pretty good life. They're making good money. And they probably get weekends off and max vacation time a year, and but they're top of the pay scale. And therefore, in order to be more productive, the company wants to lower the pay scale by having a lower average seniority. And the only way to do that is get the people that are at the top of the pay scale to flow through because they're not going to quit early or retire early. They're making good money. So I think that's where the $70,000 flow through bonus comes from is they just want to lower their pay scale because I'm sure there's an accountant somewhere going, uh, you, to be more productive, you need to lower that, that pay scale. Um, so I think that's where some of this is coming from. Um, and, and the main thing is that they get it all taken care of so they don't end up going off the edge of the runway. Speaking of the edge of the runway, EMAS. What is it? How do I know if my runway has it? <sighs> well, let's talk about that. EMAS is Engineered Materials Arrestor System. Now, I've known about this for quite some time. This is something that was developed uh, here in my time in the industry. 
It is a bed of engineered material built into the end of a runway to reduce the severity of the consequences of a runway excursion. Engineered materials are defined in the FAA advisory circular number, yada, yada, yada. I won't go into that. I'll put a link in the show notes. As high energy absorbing materials of selected strength, which will reliably and predictably crush under the weight of an aircraft. While the current technology involves lightweight crushable concrete blocks, any material that has been approved by the FAA's advisory circular can be used for the EMAS. The purpose of EMAS is to stop an aircraft overrun with no human injury and minimal aircraft damage. The aircraft is slowed by a loss of energy required to crush the EMAS. The EMAS is similar in the concept of a runway truck ramp or a race circuit gravel trap made of gravel or sand. It is intended to stop an aircraft at heads as it has overshot a runway where there is insufficient free space for a standard runway safety area. Multiple patents have been issued on the construction and design of the materials and process. Now, I first saw this in action out of Chicago. There was a flight, I believe it was Air Mexico flight, happened, I think, 10 years ago, that they overran runway four right in Chicago, when they used to land on four right back in the day. Now, they overran. They didn't make that turn off at the end there, which is, I think, now it's designated as November or Victor. Um, and they ended up overrunning the air, the runway and into the EMAS. And once it's in the EMAS, it's like like the the information noted. It's like running your truck into a gravel pit. It just digs into the gravel and slows the aircraft to a stop. Um, EMAS has saved quite a few airframes over its development. And I was just, I saw an article about this that recently a citation, a Cessna citation, I think it was, overran uh, a local airport, a GA aircraft, and went into the EMAS. And I thought, man, I, I we don't think we've ever spoken about this on the show. How do I know if my runway has it? Well, it's on the 10 9 chart. So all you got to do is look at a chart of the airport. And usually it's depicted by a box or a rectangle on the far end of the runway with a label saying that there's EMAS there. Next time you fly into an airport and it has EMAS, ask if you can make a long landing and, and taxi to the end to turn off and take a look at it. Or maybe it's there at your approach end. Take a look at it. It's just concrete blocks that are designed to crush under the weight of an airplane. Not sure if they would actually crush if you walked on them, but... I could see how that could be a problem. And just just to be clear for everybody, it, Captain Tony is uh, not suggesting that you actually taxi onto. <laughs> oh, don't don't go don't go take a look by actually taxiing on it. Yeah, just you uh, know, runway excursion. Yeah. Now that that being said, in, in terms of walking on it, that is still generally concrete, and I think it's it's actually even for planes less than I I want to say around twenty thousand or twenty five thousand pounds. I don't I don't even know if they would crush. Uh, it's actually only for for much heavier airplanes, generally speaking. So walking on it's not going to be a problem. And in your Cessna Citation is probably not going to do anything either. But uh, don't go taxing onto the EMS. Well, it'd be hard to do <laughs> because it's beyond the edge of the runway. It's kind of like off-roading. <laughs> but don't go take a look by trying to actually take your airplane onto it. No, but you definitely, if you get a chance to take a look, maybe you're overflying an airport, uh, 
in the pattern and you just take a look at it. It's it's amazing stuff. Look into it. Not something that a Cessna 172 would probably ever need to worry about, but as you uh, grow in your career, it's definitely some knowledge to have. Now, the last few things we wanted to talk about, Roger, while we have you, is the federal mask mandate has been extended to January of 2022. I did see that. We were we were anticipating this was going to happen, especially with all the buzz about these Delta variants and now sure. the uptick in COVID cases. But we're not going to talk about all that. What does wearing the mask for another six months or so mean? to the flying public. I mean, we always said that when you walk through security and go through the magnetometer or that little x-ray thing that they're doing now, um, it kind of makes people loopy. Where's my gate? Where, where, where's my time? <laughs> it makes them kind of dumb, <laughs> if you ask me. Uh, but now, add to that a mask wearing for hours on end in a cramped hollow tube that's pressurized traveling above the earth at six miles in orbit at 500 miles an hour. And it makes them violent. (laughs) And we see this with record breaking fines that the FAA is now imposing on passengers that behave badly. Do you think that wearing the mask even longer is going to have an effect on this industry? I don't know. Probably not. I think that the the effect on the industry that you're going to see is much the same as what we're seeing already with passengers behaving badly. And it's it, I mean, this goes much deeper than than the mask. Um, I mean, I, I could have several things to say on this, I, I think that but it's it's just more sad to me. Um, I think so much of this is political. I hate politics and. Yeah, you know, I. I, it's, it's, it's a mess. I, I, I'm literally sitting here and I cannot, I cannot formulate a thought. I, it's the whole thing is sad to me of what, you know, the, the loss of life and, and through this whole pandemic and, and some people, you know, their thoughts on infringing personal freedoms and how that's affected their behavior towards everything. And the masks into airports is just such a small subset of that. Like you said, I'm not, I mean, I don't think anybody was surprised by this. Yeah. I hope everything works itself out. I don't even know how it's going to work itself out, but I just hope that it does somewhat soon because it's such a small subset of of a much greater thing going on in the entire world right now. Yeah. Well, with school starting, we have seen lighter loads and that's, that's normal but it's not something we've seen for a long time. We've actually seen a tapering off of loads. I know uh, Kyle puts up there on the, his information board the TSA numbers every day, and they're kind of stagnating now. Um, and I do believe it's because school is starting and people are going back to work and things are starting to get back to normal. Yes, we do have the federal mask mandate that has been extended. And in relation to that, with the news that the FDA has approved the Pfizer SARS-CoV-19 vaccine, this actually has a lot to, to do with how we're going to move forward, at least from an airline perspective, from a pilot perspective. What does it mean? Does it mean that we must have 100% participation for airline employees? The president went on 
the news recently and said that he encourages all private businesses to mandate the vaccine now that it's FDA approved. And he said it four times on, in his man. speech. Come on, man. And Come on, Joe man. said, hey, I encourage all Americans to, to get the vaccine. If you were waiting for FDA approval, here it is. Now, I'm not here to discuss the political beliefs about whether you should get vaccinated or not. I know we've talked about it here on the show. Um, we here are all vaccinated on the show. Um, it's just, for us, makes life easier. And Delta Airlines is now mandating that all of their pilots and employees get vaccinated. And if you don't, as of today, they'll be charging you $200, I believe, a paycheck or pay period uh, for medical expenses. So a healthcare cost increase only to those that are not vaccinated. Come on. Come on, man. Get a life. You know, I guess in some fashion makes sense. You know, if choosing not to get vaccinated preserves your choice, but given the fact that there is a rather sizable body of evidence that says that you're much more likely to incur, incur some substantial, some possible substantial medical costs because of that choice that you made. You know, maybe it's, maybe there is something to that that, that also preserves your choice because there is something to be said for that in this country. Um, but those, sometimes those choices have consequences and, you know, should everybody else pay the additional costs for your choice? Should you start incurring those medical costs? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll put an article uh, in the show notes here. I just got one from NPR that is entitled Delta Airlines is going to start charging unvaccinated employees $200 per month. In an article that came out just yesterday, the 25th of August, Delta Airlines is going to charge them, uh, the unvaccinated, the policy of the airline's top executives says it's necessary because the average hospital stay for the virus costs the airline $40,000. CEO Ed Bastain said that all employees who have been hospitalized for the virus in recent weeks have not been fully vaccinated. All of them. So the airline's trying to recoup some of their costs, but they don't want the vaccinated employees to have to uh, have the burden of the load. So what they're saying is that the airline uh, will stop extending pay protection to unvaccinated workers who contract COVID-19, and that stops September 30th. They will also require unvaccinated workers to be tested weekly beginning September 12th although Delta will not cover the cost. So they will have to wear masks in all indoor company settings, and they stop short of matching United Airlines, which will require employees to be vaccinated starting September 27th or face termination. However, the $200 monthly surcharge, which starts uh, November, uh, may have the same effect over there. So this surcharge will be necessary to address the financial risk the decision to not vaccinate is creating our company, Bastain said in a memo to employees. He's also said that 75% of employees at Delta are vaccinated and up to 72% will be fully vaccinated by, uh, and that's up from 72% in mid-July. He said the aggressiveness of the leading strain 
of the virus means we need to get many more of our people vaccinated as close to 100% as possible. Now, over at some of the other airlines, they're at this point have a stance of they're not going to require it. However, I foresee this is changing. And I think Delta's been leading the way in pilot contracts and <laughs> benefits for many years. I think it's only a matter of time before every airline follows suit. Well, I just want to say uh, thank you very much, Roger, for joining us today. Uh, as we wrap up this show, the next show we have planned is a big one. Uh, it's going to be show 88, our flight 88, and uh, we're working diligently to get that one produced, hopefully in uh, relatively quick fashion here. So you're not waiting as long for the next show. I also want to say thank you to all the ladies and gentlemen out there that are joining us on this journey. Please be sure to subscribe and follow to the Squawk Head and Podcasts. Uh, wherever you're listening and share with a friend please help us out uh, really does help the show when you tell others about the squawk ident podcast this is a it truly is a, a love affair with podcasting and aviation and you know we really hope that you're getting a lot out of what we're talking about here on each episode we also love listener feedback so if you can send us an email or a note on social media or even some audio feedback just record it right there on your phone use the voice recorder record it and then send it in an email the email can be found right there on the website at aviatortony.com that's alpha victor the number eight romeo tango oscar November, yankee.com you can also go to the contact us page and send us an, a 90 second audio right there on Speakpipe. so check us out we love to hear from you and if you're following on the social media, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram users, you can follow us under the Squawk Eyed Podcast. A big final thank you to Captain Roger for joining me today. And a big thank you to you for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there. Be safe and take care of each other. Bye, y'all. Take care. Woo! Meow.